so many different lines from that movie, though. It is so cool. Frankenstein. You're putting me on. Do you pronounce it Frodrick Frankenstein? No, it's Frederick. I see. You must be Igor. Now it's pronounced Igor. They told me it was Igor. Well, they were wrong then, weren't they? <laughs> it is a really, really good movie. It, it is. One of our favorites. Yeah, it's really good. As we were talking earlier, and you said, their wolf, their yeah. castle. Something like that. I thought you wanted to. No. <laughs> so yourself, I'm easy. Marty Feldman is wonderful. Yeah, it's every it, everyone in the film is wonderful. Yeah, just, the just, whole the whole film is done really the well. Entire cast. Yeah, and you would know exactly who we're talking about, and you probably do already, and that's good. <laughs> yeah, it's it's done in a very classic Universal style. wasn't done by Universal, and I'm betting right now they're kicking themselves for that, and I hope they are, just a little bit, because this could have been really fantastic it would have been really nice to put in with the frankenstein legacy yes it yes. would have worked young frankenstein Ta-da! yep perfect go see it go see it because it's a good film if you haven't seen it go watch it find it stream it it's really good maybe you got an older brother or an uncle that's got it <laughs> maybe it. your father's got it hidden away somewhere because he he doesn't want you to see it just yet but it's just kind of like no come on it's time it's good. Tis the season. Go yep. watch Young Frankenstein. So. With yeah. that. <laughs> what we're doing. Yeah. Today we are going to be talking about Frankenstein. And we thought we'd just kind of lead off a little bit. A little bit of an intro. Talking about the, one of the fun adaptations of Frankenstein. And still remembered and well loved. So. Coming up on this coming episode, we're discussing Frankenstein. The modern Prometheus. Mary Shelley and all the things. Mm -hmm. So stick around. Stay with us here on Couch and Coffee Table. That'll be someone. This is Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. I'm Heather Perry. And we're back again with another episode here, Surfing on the Couch. And today we're talking about Frankenstein. And we're going to run one of the many adaptations from our radio series as well. Uh, the radio collection, I should say. But uh, starting out, we, we have the fact that Frankenstein was written by a woman. Mm -hmm. And... This is not to be confused with uh, Jane Austen, um, not by any stretch of the imagination. Wow, that that would be messed up. Yeah, yeah. Of course, they they, they have adaptations of Pride and Prejudice and Zombies. Yeah, so, yeah. I mean, that I I bring her up done. because I don't really know of that many many women writers of that time. There's oh. Mary Shelley, there's Jane Austen, but I don't know who else. The, were the Bronte sisters? Yeah. Uh, Emily Bronte and- Charlotte? Uh, possibly. Is it Charlotte? Yeah, because we had Wuthering Heights and we have yeah. Jane Eyre and we have, we have quite a few women writers. I mean, I'd have to, I'd have to do some homework. 
Oh, that's uh, all right. I, I was just blanking. Jane Austen was just the first one I thought of. Yeah, I mean. <laughs> Mary probably would, would have been more at home with Emily yeah. Bronte than, yeah. you know, Jane. She yeah. probably would have looked at Jane and just went, you are just too caught up in yourself. <laughs> I keep I keep thinking what sort of a Darcy our monster would make. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that would be interesting. <laughs> oh, goodness. Mm. That was unexpected. Um, I just, I was, I was looking at you and I was thinking about the fact that I don't really know of that many famous women authors from that mm -hmm. time. And I feel like from that time period, there was, there's a lot more, mm -hmm. it's dominated more by men mm -hmm. for obvious reasons because of the time period. But I'm also sitting there going, you know, there's, there's a lot of women authors mm -hmm. yeah. that, yeah. made it really big and just gave you something that would entertain or mm -hmm. terrify or stop and make you think. Uh, I think there were several, because uh, I I do, some are coming to mind, but again, I, I would want to do more homework before I start talking about it. Right, yeah, um, and we can, we can talk about that a little later yeah, on if you want. Mary Shelley uh, was 19 when the, when the work was published. It was published anonymously, and famously, it, the the origin story of Frankenstein was that she was at a party with her husband and Lord Byron and uh, Byron challenged the guests to um, a writing contest to see who could write the best ghost story. Mm -hmm. So uh, Mary decided that she would busy herself to thinking of the most gruesome things she could and, and do better than everyone else there who were also all writers. Mm -hmm. And uh, she did. <laughs> Uh, I can't remember if she won proper or not, but she certainly set everyone back on their heels. Yeah. Um, so she created a writing genre. She uh, has one of the, if not the only at the time, one of the very few non-religious creation myths mm -hmm. and a work that has lasted over 200 years. So not bad, not bad for just barely not even being out of your teens. <laughs> no, not at all. <clears throat> I mean, uh, some of the things that's been talked about has been just how much contribution has her husband Percy did mm -hmm. over the years. And I think he was much more of an editor than anything else. But mm -hmm. there are differences between the 1818, 1823, mm -hmm. and 1831 editions, yeah. which have been attributed to Percy's editing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, hmm. there's there's also been a biography written about Shelley uh, in 2018 called In Search of Mary Shelley. Hmm. And this was written, I believe, by Fiona Sampson. Okay. Who also asked the question, why hasn't Mary Shelley gotten the respect she deserves on the 200th anniversary of Frankenstein? Yeah. Actually, I think that, that came up uh when I was doing a Google search earlier about this. <clears throat> the Frankenstein notebooks uh, are held at the Bodean Library. Bodleian? Bodleian, excuse me, sorry. Bodleian Library in Oxford. Mm, that would be very interesting. Yeah, it would be. We have a rare library uh, in in town, and I've been through it once or twice just to see a few things. It's 
it's always worth it to go. So if you are you ever find yourself <laughs> in proximity, go take a go take a look. That would be neat. Yeah, but <clears throat> it's it's a really good book, and yeah, I I don't know what Lord Byron or her husband Percy wrote, but yeah, I don't think I've ever think, read anything by Percy Shelley. Uh, I'm fairly certain I've read something by Lord Byron, but I couldn't put name to it. I think I've read some of their poetry, yeah. some of Percy's and uh -huh. some of Lord Byron's. Yeah. But as far as the one that, in every sense of the word, created a monster <laughs> for that contest, I yeah. believe Miss Mary yeah. is the one that did it. Yeah. In every sense of the word, she created a monster. <laughs> Interestingly enough, um, she was... She's often uh, attributed to be deeply religious uh, in some of the some of the little blurbs I've read about her. And I, I didn't know this uh, for years and years and years. That's something I've recently been acquainted with, this idea. And you can kind of see that come out in her writing just because her she, the authoress, condemns Victor Frankenstein's actions throughout the novel. I mean, there are many reasons why everything goes pear-shaped, but the fact that he was trying to create man and make himself a kind of God is the biggest crime for Mary Shelley that Victor Frankenstein, her, her creation does, which I think is really interesting. Um, since Frankenstein makes the circuit for stuff people are made to read in high school, I feel pretty confident many people have, have probably had to read it or read sections of it. And it is still a favorite work of mine. Um, it's been a, a minute since I've read the original. I didn't have time to reread it before we before we started talking uh, about this 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 year. Um, and I think since we we broadcast a Frankenstein last year around this time, I'm sh I feel sure we talked at that point. The differences. Uh we we did not we did not touch on it. I just oh. aired the radio uh, show, I believe, for last year. I oh don't think we 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 have not touched on this subject. This is Ooh. all brand new for this year. Us talking about Frankenstein, oh. I believe. Oh my! Okay, how how far do you want me to go? <laughs> uh, as as much as you'd like. I mean, I okay. You you talk about some of the uh, different aspects of students reading like Frankenstein yeah, and yeah. stuff like that in high school. Uh -huh. I never got the chance. Okay. Oh, most uh, junior high and high school. Heather and I come from a small Indiana <laughs> town and um, we, good. well, there's mm -hmm. a lot of safety. Yeah. Yeah. That comes with junior high and high school. Generous description. Yeah. So more often than not, more often than not, I can't tell you between grade school and junior high and high school, I had to wade through a semester of Tom Sawyer. Oh, God, yeah. By Mark Twain or Huckleberry Finn. This is not a slam on the teacher's few grades before had done. You know, nobody was really checking and teacher's discretion, they decide that they want to do this. Yeah. Uh, one of the English teachers that I 
had the one year he was doing a Tom Sawyer Huckleberry Finn, but I was so upset because about a year or so later, he did the Hound of the Baskervilles. And I was sitting there going, why couldn't I have been in that class? Yeah. And Hound of the Baskervilles is a lot cooler. Yeah. You know, plus, you know, you'd heard, I'd heard the, the Mark Twain stories a couple of times. Mm-hmm. Now they're banned. They're banned because the language in them. Completely banned. I think so. Yeah. Oh, I wonder what they're going to do now. Because it was, <laughs> yeah. I felt it was a crutch that they leaned on. Yeah, it probably I was. Really, I mean, the teaching curriculum has changed quite a bit since you and I were in school. Yeah, I, I um, felt like that it was very much, it was a crutch that mm-hmm. uh, some, especially some of the older teachers kind of leaned on. Yeah, well, it was, a, it was a known quantity. There wasn't usually a lot of discussion about it, or they led the discussion in such a way that yeah. we would parrot back the ideas they wanted us to have. Yeah. I also had a, a horror in literature class in college, which you would have eaten up. You would have loved to have been, and I'm so sorry you weren't, but we did a detailed reading of Frankenstein. And even nice. then it wasn't as, as detailed as I, I would have wanted to go. Um, there's a lot of layers to this story. There and is. And the, oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, there's a lot of layers to this. And yes, I would have enjoyed the class. Mm-hmm. But I was trying to read Frankenstein and Dracula. And uh, another one that I hit upon that uh, two or three of my teachers just kind of went, why do you want to read that for English class? Because I want to read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, Mm -hmm. Robert Louis Stevenson. Yeah, it's a short read. It's a short book. It's a short story. And that was was really the only bone of contention that they had. They said, Mm -hmm. well, it is a dark story, but it's also a short story. I mean, can if you want to do like Kidnapped or mm-hmm. Black Arrow or something like that from Robert Louis Stevenson, mm-hmm. that's fine. And usually I'd apt out for Treasure Island because all I'd have to do is basically thumb through it yeah. <laughs> and just reacquaint myself with the book. I could do that over a weekend, write the report Sunday night and then turn it in Monday. <laughs> yeah. Michael is rather famous for last minute drafts. <laughs> just a little. Oh, goodness. Well, delving delving into Frankenstein, um, some differences that are, I think, important right off the start is most of the adaptations you would have encountered between the original and the adaptation is that in the book, the, the monster is articulate. He is very, very smart. He is surprisingly well-read. He learns to read, relearns to read, relearns to speak. Um, in mind's eye, I've always imagined him speaking French, but I, I don't think that's ever really gone into. Um, he learns, uh, and it's it's been a minute since I've read the book, but he learns when he's wandering the woods and he gets out of Switzerland and he, I think he's in, I want to say he's in the French Alps, but um, he comes across a, a family in a cottage and their young son uh, or you know, young man's son, has brought home a war bride. And she doesn't speak English, but her name is Saffron. And they call her Saffy. And so they're teaching Saffy English. And he is kind of hiding in the woodshed that's adjacent to the house so he can see through the chinks in the wall. Um, apparently the house is not very well made. And he's he's playing good forest fairy for the family. So he's chopping wood and leaving it for them or finding berries and leaving it for them. And just sort of basking in this family um, vicariously. 
And as the old man is teaching Safi English, uh, the, the patriarch, uh, he's learning too. And uh, he finds Victor's notes in his, he steals one of Victor's coats when he's driven out of, of the lab after his creation. Um, and so he has those with him and he learns to read those and discovers his own history. And um, about the only, only film that actually, well, no, a couple films have him as articulate, but uh, Boris Karloff's portrayal as a living corpse was so very um, iconic <laughs> that it's really hard to get away from that idea. Uh, Victor Frankenstein created his monster to be beautiful. He chose all the separate parts to be beautiful and put them together to be beautiful. And then the horror of the monster was that it was dead and inanimate but then it came to life and was looking at him and the eyes were yellowed like a dead man's because he'd just recently been. And the skin was a little translucent and you could see the veins and some of the ligaments and that was gross. And Victor just lost his cookies over the whole thing and went a little crazy. And uh, in, in the confusion and the screaming and the bumble, uh, the monster shambled out. He's never actually given a name, but a lot of scholars have a have a habit of calling him Adam. Um, there yeah. are a lot of references to Paradise Lost throughout the novel, and Michael, neither Michael nor I have ever read Paradise Lost. We were talking about that a little bit. I'm I'm familiar with some of the ideas, but I've I've only thumbed through it. Sadly, yeah. I've not actually sat down to mm -hmm. read it. Yeah. And uh, biblical fan fiction is what it is, isn't it? It's what? Biblical fan fiction. Just about, yeah. Yeah. Just about. Yeah. So There's a lot of philosophical ideas and mm -hmm. stuff in there. And Mary Shelley was, was equating Victor Frankenstein to sa Satan, uh, seeking uh, forbidden knowledge and, and whatnot. But the monster himself has a, has a deal to go through. And his constant question is, do I have a soul? Because you created me. Do I yeah. have a soul? And Robert De Niro does a really good job delivering this yes. dialogue. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein is the title of the film. Mm -hmm. It was done, I believe, about the mid '90s. It's it was directed and pretty much taken in hand by Kenneth Branagh. It's got Kenneth Branagh. It's got Robert De Niro. It's it's got Tom Hollis. It's got John Cleese in a cameo. As the one doctor, it's got. Oh, um, yeah, it's got so many. Uh, like Helena Bonham Carter. Yes, uh, Adrian Quinn is in it as the oh. ship's captain. Oh yeah. And it's it's <laughs> it's got some heavies in there. It's yeah, and it's that. it's probably the closest adaptation to the yeah. actual book mm -hmm. that I have seen, and I'm very mm -hmm. impressed with it. Uh, but then again, side note here. Just about anything Kenneth Brenner gets a hold of, he treats the source material with respect. Yeah. He really does. And for that, hats off. Mm -hmm. He is definitely someone that I, if I were able to get a really good book mm -hmm. published that I enjoyed and everything like that, and mm -hmm. I really, you know, if he asked for the rights <laughs> to be able to get a hold of it and say, hey, can I direct this? Yeah, go for it. Mr. <laughs> Brenner, it's it's... It's yours. We'll work out something. I want you to direct this. Yeah. He does a very good job. Yeah. 
Uh, other other differences. Um, not too many movie adaptations take it all the way to Antarctica or the Arctic yeah. Circle, but we definitely go there. Um, yeah, not we... all adaptations actually have a ship's captain, so it's nice that uh, yeah. Adrian Quinn got into it. Captain uh, Walton, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's a lot of framing for this story. Um, yeah, because by using the captain, especially in Kenneth Branagh's adaptation, there's a point whenever the captain is talking to Victor, uh-huh. And Victor's half frozen, just looks at him and half uh-huh. whispers, do you share my madness? <laughs> you know, meaning his obsessions, uh-huh. you know, and I just, I love the look that he has when he says this. Uh-huh. Kenneth Brenner as, uh-huh. as Victor Frankenstein. I love the look he has uh-huh. and he almost whispers it to him like, you know, oh my God, I found someone just as crazy as me. <laughs> And uh, the scene you were referring to where they're in the cave and they're talking about mm-hmm. that. Yes. And Robert De Niro delivers these lines as the monster mm-hmm. eloquently. Yeah. And just says, what of what my soul? Do I have one? Or is that a piece you left out? Mm-hmm. Holds up a flute and says, do you know how I could, did you know I could, I knew how to play this? And what part of me does this reside? Mm-hmm. You know? My hands, my elbow, <laughs> you know, and it just, it's, yeah. it's done. So I'm in describing the scenes. I'm not doing them justice. No, it's a really and well-made when, film. And I, I say that wholeheartedly that I'm not doing them justice. I really encourage if you find it, take a look at it because again, it's a, another really good adaptation and it's, you know, I, I really I really do encourage that because it's a good film. It's a really good film. A personal favorite as far as Frankenstein in my own personal collection. Mm-hmm. Definitely. There are many, 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 many adaptations. And yes. There are many different directions you can go with this story. Um, because it's on the high school, you know, undergrad roster, a lot of times what you'll find online and... Uh, you know, here I am showing my age again, fan fiction net. A lot of people were posting their takes on Frankenstein because that was a writing assignment they had been given in their class. You know, how would you change the ending of the book? What would you do differently? So there were some interesting stories where people were like, well, the monster and the maker should, you know, should reconcile or uh, something else should happen. Or, you know, that's, that's the, that's the fun of fan fiction. It's, it's a, a, what next or yeah. I didn't like that. I'm going to change it. Yeah. Or, you know, what would happen if? Um, so it's kind of interesting to see some some takes on that where uh, people who are young authors or budding authors or um, author author hopefuls <laughs> are are trying trying out in the sandbox that is Frankenstein. Um few other points just to briefly brush on uh the creation scene in the book does not involve lightning of any kind um essentially victor frankenstein quote gathers the instruments of life around him and then imbues life into his creation and that's about what you get (laughs) so i had an idea as to why mary shelley did that i think if i can just break in for a second Sorry. Um, 
I always thought that she did that so she wouldn't have to quibble with scientists over this surgical ah. tool or that surgical tool. That's, yeah. What I find most adorable about the entire situation is that Victor, Victor Frankenstein is an undergrad. And Mary Shelley thought that you would get the basics of creation of life as an undergrad chemistry student. And I find that adorable. <laughs> if yeah, you've ever yeah. suffered through AP chemistry or college chemistry or heaven help you graduate level chemistry, you, you are a sad person who maybe has too much whiskey and will uh, make obscure jokes about, uh, about chromosomes to people who then look at you strangely. But you're not going to, you know, I never managed to create a monster. <laughs> maybe I thought about it in the middle of maybe. environmental chemistry, but, but maybe, maybe I did. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> the kitchen is too small to hide a body. Uh, do we want to talk about the various adaptations? Uh, yeah, I wanted okay. to move on to that in the next segment. Okay. I wanted to kind okay. of cover basics still of the gotcha. books okay. and or Mary Shelley. Gotcha. Okay. Uh, real quick, okay. but you know. Yeah, we've we've skated past pretty quick, um, both the book and the author. Yeah, we, we've There's talked... a lot of meat on that bone. Yeah. And um, there are many, many, many things we can say about it and the, the adaptations. But Yeah, we mentioned uh, two already. Yeah. With Young and Frankenstein and Mary so Shelley. Many more. Yeah, there, there um, are. But pick it up, give it a read. It's approachable in language. The pacing is maybe a little slower than you might expect. Um, the language is no more challenging than Dracula. So if you've, if you've slogged through Dracula, um, I always forget the time it's set in, the time period, because of all the different adaptations. They, they move forward and backward as, as needed. Um, so there is there is some solid history there that uh, I don't feel I don't feel capable of talking about. But uh, Safi, uh, that character is uh, places things rather firmly within a particular year and a particular segment of history that we did discuss in my college class, and I no longer remember the details. I am so sorry, Professor. Um, it's all right. It's all right. <laughs> it's, it's been a minute. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's all right. But uh, yeah, have it out, get it, get through it. Um, it's a good time. It's an interesting read. And then when you start, when you go back to the adaptations, your favorite, and then find some new ones, you're going to start seeing how people treat the themes in the book and how people treat the characters. Um, it's often argued credibly that Victor Frankenstein is the actual monster. And yeah. Uh, yeah. His creation, who didn't agree to any of this and doesn't really do anything wrong until he decides to do some things wrong, um, is his primary and, and greatest victim. And just the, the whole tragedy that comes about for the Frankenstein family and anyone associated with him uh, or them is directly the actions of Victor setting things in motion. Yeah, and um, I am always a sucker for a sympathetic monster because I'm usually rooting for him, <laughs> and um, that makes uh, that makes it an, an interesting read. Is when I when I first encountered the monster, of course, we encountered him in, in film as a child, and uh, 
you know, he's big and spooky and scary, but then we have the book and he's actually quite articulate and very sympathetic. And maybe I should uh, get some cliff notes on Paradise Lost the next time I read through the novel so that I can mm. have some better references. Because there's a lot going on. She packs a lot into this, you know, compared with stories I wrote when I was 18. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Mary Shelley is a genius. Yeah. Uh, actually, real quick to that, I believe, according to Wikipedia, she was 20. Mm. I thought I'd read uh, somewhere if she wrote it when she was 18, it was published when she was 19, but anonymously. Yeah, it was published anonymously and mm -hmm. it was published on uh, January 1st hmm. anonymously. And it was published January 1st <laughs> anonymously. And we see, trying to find it here. Yeah. Uh, published anonymously in London, January 1st, 1818, when mm -hmm. she was 20. Hmm. Uh, her name appeared on the second edition, which was published in Paris in 1821. Interesting. So two years later. Yeah. But yeah, I believe she did write it whenever she was 19. And that's yeah. still, that's still some serious, yeah, serious marksmanship yeah. there. It's Great authorship. Very well-crafted novel. It's a very well-crafted story. So I think at this point it would be a good place to pause. And... Uh, yes, we can pause yeah. here. And when we come back, we'll talk about uh, a lot of the different adaptations, mm -hmm. which means we're going to be talking Universal, Hammer, uh, mm -hmm. of course, kind of do a gentle drive-by past the two that we've already mentioned mm -hmm. and everything else in between because Frankie really had a lot of hokum. Uh, He's got legs adaptation from like the late 60s early 70s mm -hmm. and we're gonna hopefully get around to talking about all of those in our next segment so stick around you're listening to couch and coffee table stay with us this is couch and coffee table welcome back to our second segment here on our discussion of frankenstein in all its many forms and colorful adaptations we're not going to be able to capture all of them because there have been so many indeed indeed uh, like between michael and i we could name probably 20 to 30 and then we've pulled up a wikipedia page that covers some adaptations that has maybe 200 yeah uh, if so. you are interested in any of the articles, we're happy to name them. Uh, this particular Wikipedia article that we have up is called Frankenstein and Popular Culture. If you are interested in tracking down Wikipedia for that, thank you, Wikipedia, for all the information that you allow on there to be freely used. Open source stuff is yeah, nice. It's very nice. Although not allowable in graduate level classes as a source. <laughs> I know. And that's hopefully. But you can use it and jump off and find the original sources. Then you can quote the original. Yeah. Yeah. Happy tips. Yeah. That, that mm. is, that is nice. And it, hopefully Wikipedia will be a much more friendly, much more friendly to college professors as the years go by. Well, undergrad, I think you can get away with it. But uh, since anyone can edit a Wikipedia article, oh, sometimes it's a little dubious, you know. Okay, I so, see where you're going yeah. with that. Yeah, I <laughs> yeah. see what you did. I yeah. see what you did. Okay. Uh, vetted sources. Vetted sources. Mm -hmm. So obviously there's been theater adaptations. There's been film, radio, novel adaptations. 
um, TV series. Uh, one of the first things we thought of was, uh, I remembered that Edison Studios had done one of the very first films that was Frankenstein, and looks like that was done in 1910. And it's very short. Uh, it's only maybe two or three minutes at most. And um, the, the film quality is not the best, obviously. It's, it's so old. It's been rescued. Um, what I really liked about it, if you, if you find it online, and you probably can, um, it's, a, it's a film of the stage effects that happen when the monster appears. It is Victor Frankenstein turning into the monster. So it's a Jekyll and Hyde moment. He sees this reflection in the mirror and... In, in the best stage theater fashion, uh, there's, there's an obvious lighting change and then the makeup gets highlighted differently. And I love that. I love that effect. Um, old theater techniques are fascinating and work so well with, with the technology of the time. So that's really interesting to see. It's not, I don't think it's terribly hard to find, but I've not gone looking for it in a hot minute. The the Edison version? Yeah. The yeah. Edison version, if you look around hard enough on like YouTube, mm -hmm. you can find it. Yeah. You can find it. It's becoming morbidly available. I, I found it interesting that just between, uh, in 1915, there was a another adaptation called Life Without Soul, which was directed by Joseph W. Smiley. And then we have an Italian one mm -hmm. in 1921, The Monster of Frankenstein, mm -hmm. Il Mostro de Frankenstein, mm -hmm. de Frankenstein. Um, to any and all Italians out there, I hope I didn't butcher that. I do apologize sincerely <laughs> if I did, because the Italian language is a beautiful language. In it fact, is. many languages across the world are very beautiful written to by, my ear. Written by poets. I yeah. Think. So there's Italy. We chose the most oh, yeah. poetic words. Yep. The um, film's producer was Luciano Albertini. Mm -hmm. And it was a really interesting uh, version. I have not had a chance to see the version. I'm not even sure if it's still. Oh, it's considered uh, lost. I hadn't gotten down that far. It's, it is considered lost, which is a shame because it would have been really, really cool. Moving on, the next one was in 1931 for sound adaptation and also the one that is considered almost definitive. Yes. Boris Karloff. Frankenstein, 1931, Universal Pictures, directed by James Whale. You may or may not know this, but um, during the makeup construction, uh, Karloff himself asked that some, some wax be put over his eyelids because he wanted to make the monster less lively. And of course, if, you've, if, if you're acquainted with Boris Karloff's work, you know that he has very fine eyes, very dynamic, very, uh, very present and compelling. Yeah, very uh, compelling eyes. That's, that's, a, good, that's mm -hmm. a good word there, compelling. Yeah. It's, nicely, it's, nicely used. Well, it's, it really makes most, like when he's a villain, he's a villain and it's the eyes. So... I do love that idea that the, this was his request to make the monster le less lively, less uh, present yeah. as a living thing. But I also wonder what it would have been like if he hadn't. Like if you have the blazing eyes of Karloff 
in that makeup? Like what kind of a performance? Because Karloff has had silent roles before. Yeah. He's had low speaking parts in many Hammer and Universal films. Was he Hammer or am I? I Uh, He was not Hammer, I Uh, don't believe. I don't believe he did anything for Hammer, Mm -hmm. but I know that he did do a handful of things for Roger Corman. Oh, okay. And yes. American, yes, uh, did. American International. Yeah. So, because I knew it was Universal and other and others. Yeah. Um, I mean, Karloff, like a lot of actors, mm-hmm. just went where the work was. Yes. And Vincent Price yeah. was also someone that did yes. that. Working actors. Yeah. So he's he's a very expressive actor, and I I that would have been really a, a changed performance had mm-hmm. he been allowed to do that. But it was his choice to. Uh, to kind of hobble himself in this role uh, figuratively and literally, because this is also where he, he did some damage to his back uh, lugging um, the actor who was playing Victor up the stairs in the windmill on, for a number of takes, he, he hemorrhaged some discs and actually in the later part of his life uh, really dealt with a lot of pain and uh, loss of mobility because of the injury sustained while he was playing Frankenstein. But I digress. There are many, That's okay. Many. Uh, there, there are about yeah, there are about five different, uh, five different Universal monster films with Frankenstein. Um, <laughs> the interesting thing about Frankenstein from '31 is that the movie was also selected for preservation in the United States National Film Registry. Thanks. Uh, the sequel, Bride of Frankenstein, which was done four years later, was also directed by James Whale, with Karloff as the creature again, mm-hmm. followed by Son of Frankenstein in 39, another four years, and then the last of the three films with, oh, it Son of Frankenstein is the last of the movies with Boris Karloff as a creature. Uh, the Ghost of Frankenstein is really where they started to descend into B-movie territory. Mm-hmm. And from there, we kind of we, we kind of um, springboard off of that to Albert, uh, Albert, sorry, Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein. Mm-hmm. And that also had uh, Glenn Strange as Frankenstein. That's a fun romp, though. That's a fun romp. It actually, it it's actually stands up pretty well. Yeah. Uh, you screened that for me the first time a couple years back, and I'm surprised at how much I enjoyed it. Yeah. Uh, and then it's, it, it makes a regular rotation around the House of Perry here. So Yeah. <laughs> now, Glenn Strange had been Frankenstein uh, at least a couple of times before uh, the Abbott Costello film. The Abbott Costello film came out in 48. Uh, in 44, with House of Frankenstein, Glenn Strange was the Frankenstein monster. Mm-hmm. Uh, House of Dracula in 45 was Glenn Strange as the monster. Doesn't House of Frankenstein have Karloff in, but as Dr. Frankenstein? I believe so. Okay. I believe yeah. that he he is... Uh, uh, let me double check that he's real like quick. He's a little older. Yeah. Um, he's a little bit older, but uh, yeah. yeah. Of course, Karloff is in House of Frankenstein, and I believe that he is playing... Dr. Frankenstein himself. Mm-hmm. And that's a weird one, but it's fun. Oh no, excuse me. He is not playing Frankenstein. Oh, he is playing Dr. Gestoff Nyman. Oh, okay. And 
he has all the same principles and okay it's he he's dr frankenstein but without the name gotcha everything okay. but the name okay is is really where we're going with that but okay that makes sense because he's he's a yeah he's a dr frankenstein type character from what i recall in frankenstein mm -hmm. meets the wolfman bela lugosi is the frankenstein monster and that's from 43. Lon Chaney Jr. is the ghost of Frankenstein, essentially, for that film. The mm -hmm. ghost of Frankenstein. He's the Frankenstein monster. That's from 42. Uh, back to Frankenstein meets the Wolfman. Uh, there's at least two other people mentioned for the monster because Bela was the Frankenstein monster, but we also have Eddie Parker and uh, Gil Perkins and a possible third stuntman often doubling for Lugosi in that. So mm -hmm. that, that had a cast of, cast of three thousands. or four, just about. <laughs> yeah. I almost said that, but I, I was going to pull back, but <laughs> yeah. So roughly between 31 and 48, we've, we've got, we've got a handful of people. Also side note here for Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney Jr. has the distinction of playing not just Frankenstein, but the mummy and the Wolfman, and also, I believe, a version of Dracula. Really? With yeah. Son of Dracula. Okay. So, kind of, kind of what um, Karloff did with House of Frankenstein, but, you know, definitely Lon Chaney Jr. was the one that kind of jumped to mm -hmm. all kinds of different... He, he ran all over as far as Universal Monsters. I mean, his name should be and usually is right there beside mm -hmm. Lugosi's and Karloff's. Well, it looks like there's rumors of a reboot with uh, Del Toro. Yeah. That would be something to see. Yeah. I like how he directs. Um, moving a little ahead. Yeah, yeah, because from here, I, I was yeah. just going to say Lon Chaney Jr. is someone who very much... He is the only one. There was never anybody else who played the Wolfman. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was always Lon. Yeah. So I like that he had that in his pocket. Moving on to Hammer Horror. Yep. We've got uh, several, several, several films. Now, the, this was how Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing met. Was The Curse of Frankenstein in 1957. With Christopher Lee playing the creature. And, of course, Peter Cushing playing Dr. Frankenstein. And... Cushing as Dr. Frankenstein is straight up evil in a lot of these films. Um, he's just so casual about human life and it's really well done. Uh, superb actors, both of them. Uh, second was the revenge of Frankenstein, which was in 58. And uh, then the evil of Frankenstein in 64. Yep. Uh, Frankenstein created woman in 67. Yep. Frankenstein must be destroyed in 69. Uh, the horror of Frankenstein in 1970 with Dave Prowse as the monster. Uh, mm -hmm. Dave Darth Vader Prowse. Yep. <laughs> and then Frankenstein and the monster from hell, which is also a favorite around the house in 74. Also again with Dave Prowse in it. Um, Christopher Lee was not in any, but the first, I don't think. I believe, yes, he, he was in Curse of Frankenstein as the monster. Mm -hmm. And I think that was, that was it. 
yeah. after that he he didn't show back up the main time you would see uh christopher lee would be in the dracula films mm -hmm. which after a certain point i don't think that poor man could escape them no no they kept getting him back there's one he doesn't even talk he just hisses through the whole film yeah because he thought his dialogue was so stupid that he refused to he refused to say it he just hissed yeah um and it's a it's effective which is yeah is unbelievable it's you know christopher lee just hissing and it's effective what an actor yeah um but the hammer the hammer horror series i think we have most of these if not all of them in our library uh on the frank uh the frankenstein hammer mm -hmm. we have them all okay yeah we have all seven mm -hmm. and uh we tidbit yeah. trivia my first hammer film that i ever bought of my own was the revenge of frankenstein nice and i, nice. I found it in a kroger <laughs> around halloween and i was getting something else and i saw it and i was just like yes <laughs> Because I used to watch these as a kid with my mother, so I was I was well acquainted with Hammer Horror. Um, I just didn't know what it was exactly. But <laughs> about the time you and I were getting back together is whenever mm -hmm. I was just getting started yeah. into my Hammer stuff and and collecting mm -hmm. and just I I knew that I was going to want to pick your brain about Hammer stuff. <laughs> And then there was all the reading and the research uh -huh. and everything that I did concerning Hammer. And the more yeah. I got into it, the more I just couldn't put it down. Yeah. I I, I kept finding more films mm -hmm. that I wanted to look at and, yeah. and see. And yeah, not all of them are gems. No. I mean, no. That, but that's to say with any production company yeah. or film studio, yeah. you are going to have some turkeys. Uh-huh. Yeah, the turkeys are easier to deal with if they are horror because yeah. if it's horror schlock, then you know maybe mm -hmm. it's it's the same with sci-fi. Yeah, you might be able to forgive cardboard sets yeah. and stuff like that because you're looking at one. Yeah. It's a bunch of hokum. Yeah, <laughs> zipper up the back of the monster. Yeah, you can count on pretty decent production values for costume and sets. Uh, Bray Studios is. I wanted to live in Bray Studios when I was a child. First off, just yeah, you know, <laughs> start there. Um, and it's it's entertaining once you start seeing the films uh you start noticing which parts of bray they're actually filming in and um i love that i love that bit of trivia like oh this is you know here they've designed they've redesigned frankenstein's lab to be castle dracula this is great but also you're gonna find a particular special effect that i would love to recreate or learn how they did it and uh, it's most often seen in Dracula films where Dracula gets staked and poor Christopher Lee's face dissolves. And it looks like baking soda and vinegar with some with some additions. <laughs> and I just I love it. I love it. It's it's effective for the time and for what it is. But as a kid watching a horror movie, the Hammer films were scary enough but not so gory and awful that I was having nightmares for, for ages and ages and ages. Um, so the, it, it's a good introduction to horror. If you are unfamiliar with horror films and you're not sure you want to get into them, I would recommend a hammer film long before I would say, you know, pick up a, a, a more modern film. That's like saw, for example, even if it's got Carrie always in, I would still choose Hammer first. And that's that's just a personal thing. Your mileage is your mileage. I digress. Oh, that's okay. Mm. 
on through the 50s and the 60s, we've got a lot of different um, variations on a theme, mm -hmm. basically. Because 1957, we have I Was a Teenage Frankenstein. <laughs> and this was done a few months after the successful I Was a Teenage Werewolf. Yeah. So, you know, if you have a really good idea of why waste it. So we're, <laughs> we just veer from the werewolf to Frankenstein. And this was um, the 50s, so it doesn't have Michael J. Fox in it. Just no. go into that thing. But it's not a bad film. It's It's entertaining. It, it doesn't have Michael J. Fox as far as the teenage werewolf, but it does have Michael Landon I forgot. as the teenage werewolf. I forgot. So, Is you his know. Is hair feathered? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 This is Michael Landon's turn on the take of Teen Wolf. Oh, no. But it's... it's <laughs> Oh, no, it's, I don't think you've shown it's it. 57. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. uh, even more fun, it's got James Best in it. No. Yeah, Roscoe P. Coltrane <laughs> is from Dukes of Hazard is in I Was a Teenage Werewolf. And he's Michael Landon's buddy, so he's your styles. Oh, wow. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're going to have yeah. to watch this. Oh, no. Yeah, I, I have it around <laughs> here somewhere. Yeah. It's, it's a rough copy. Yeah. I very much... Also, I don't think I Was a Teenage Werewolf is available on DVD. For anyone out there that is in distribution anywhere, <laughs> put this thing on DVD and Blu-ray. It's, it's a short film. Yes, you could probably put it on with I Was a Teenage Frankenstein and just... Doubleheader! Monster Teen Angst collection, <laughs> you know. Perfect. Perfect. The bits are writing themselves. <laughs> But going on down through, we have a lot of um, shake 'em ups. Uh, 1966, we're really heading into the hokum here. Jesse James meets Frankenstein's daughter. <laughs> That's a lot. I do have that somewhere. I think you do. Yeah, I'm seeing um, 65. Frankenstein meets the space monster. Yeah, yeah. Martians come to Earth to steal Earth's women with the goal of repopulating their planet. Oh, hey, Toho did something. Oh uh, yes, Toho actually did a couple. 65. Yep. Frankenstein conquers the world by the Toho Company. We oh, have War of the Gargantuas, which yes, is supposed to be a sequel to Frankenstein versus Baragon, although the fact is obscured in the U.S. version. Yeah, no, we, I didn't get that at all. But, yeah, I believe we will be looking for Frankenstein Conquers the World. Yeah. Because if we find that, then... Toho is class. Toho! <laughs> <laughs> Moving on into the 70s and 80s, here is one that is just... Dracula versus Frankenstein with J. Carol Nash, Lon Chaney Jr. in the film. Mm -hmm. Count Dracula is played by Xander Volkarf, who has a very interesting beard and mustache. Oh, my goodness. And, yes. you know, Dracula's got a little bit of a fro. Yeah. Which, and I don't know if I can say that. <laughs> um, I think you can. He looks like a well-tailored Jewish man, honestly. Okay. I mean, that's, that's what okay. Dracula looks like. He, he, he isn't so much menacing. I, I didn't feel evil off of him. I, I felt sympathy. Yeah. A little bit of sorrow hmm. for the actor that had to do this. It was <laughs> just, 
it's it's okay. hokey. It's absolutely hokey. The the makeup for Frankenstein always reminded me a little bit of Leatherface. Okay. Okay. I can see that. He looks like he could be like a cousin or a yeah. little brother to yeah. Leatherface. It was just together. Yeah. Just how they did it. And then yeah. moving on in, we have others on down through um Lady Frankenstein, Sorry. which is it was originally an Italian in Italian mm -hmm. it was the daughter of Frankenstein, but it's called Lady Frankenstein. This was also 71. Joseph Cotton plays Baron Frankenstein. Mm -hmm. And Sarah Bay is the Baron's daughter, who cr she creates her own monster. I think you've shown that to me. Yeah, because it's got a rather gruesome murder scene. Uh, possibly. Yeah, we we I was talking about it the other day with you. Um, I'll I'll spare you listeners yeah. now. Uh, it's it's a rather explicit murder scene. Uh, so yeah. Uh, going on down through. Uh, I'm not a real big fan of Andy Warhol. Neither am I. And um, I say that for any of you that are Andy Warhol fans, you know, I, mm. you know, I'm sure you're seeing something not I'm not, <laughs> but it's not really. This is the one I was thinking of earlier. Uh, go ahead and. 1985, The Bride. Oh, yes. Yeah. Because yeah, it's got Clancy Brown in. Clancy Brown is the, the monster creature. and yeah. Sting is Dr. Charles Frankenstein. Yeah. The Frankenstein's bride or the monster's bride is played by the lovely Jennifer Beals from Flashdance. <laughs> she does a really good job. Still a very beautiful woman, I might yeah. add. Oh, yes. She, yes. you know, I she I always thought she had very gorgeous deep dark eyes oh, she does yeah and absolutely just very much always made me stop and pause mm -hmm. on good show in this film yep <laughs> she does a really good job uh one of the ones that i was apprehensive about mentioning but i will go ahead and do so from 1973 blackenstein i wondered if you'd mentioned <laughs> um have you it's, seen it i've i think i've got it somewhere uh honestly what I should have mentioned in our last one was a lot more of these adaptations because there is a similar uh, Black Exploitation film mm -hmm. called uh, Blackula. Yeah. And uh, Scream, Blackula, Scream. Oh, they made two. They made two of those, oh, yes. Wow. And both are really good. They've got really good stories to them, and I would encourage anyone to take a look at those. Blackenstein, I, I've heard about. I think I've only seen part of it. But uh, not enough, and it's not enough mm -hmm. to really go into it here, because it has been a little bit. We did, we did mention seventy-four first, Young yeah. Frankenstein. Absolutely, um, there was a, a Japanese version in eighty-one, animated huh. for Kayufu Dinetsu. I'm probably in the U.S. is just simply called I'm Frankenstein. Sexy. Yeah. This also might be the animated one. Uh, well, let's let's go yeah. further down and check. Of course, in 87, The Monster Squad. Yep. And that one's one that it's basically, it's it's the Goonies meet right. Avon Costello and Frankenstein. It's, it's very much the Goonies meet the monsters. Yeah, you screened it for me, or part of it for me a little while ago. Maybe I fell asleep. But it, it, the Goonies meet Frankenstein and monsters is really good description of that. 
Yeah, where are we? Oh. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're getting ready to go on through here. Then, of course, on through Mary Shelley's Frankenstein came out in 94. Mm-hmm. And then about 10 years later, Van Helsing with Hugh Jackman. Uh, dog of a film. It had a lot of really good people it, in it. It did. It should have had a tighter script. It should have. I was once in, enraged enough to write an eight-page review. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's still available somewhere, I'm sure, online. It was, yeah. It was, it was a dog of a film. Yeah. Uh, Straight on down, we have stuff like I, Frankenstein from 2014, which is a little bit more action-based. Not bad. I like that. Victor Frankenstein from 2015. This has uh, Daniel Radcliffe. And uh, let me make sure I get his name correctly. It has got uh, James McAvoy, who also was Professor Xavier in kind of the the prequel ones. And he's, he's been in a lot of other things. He's got a very long list of accolades. Same with Daniel Radcliffe. And it's, it's a really good film. He does a really good job. There's a lot of very hard physical acting that he does in that film. Yeah. That is shocking uh, when you see it on screen. And he does a really good job with it. Brief mention for Death Race 2000. Yeah. With uh, There's been a few versions. I haven't seen the more recent adaptation, but of course. The, the newer one isn't bad if you like a lot more crash ups and everything. Mm-hmm. But Death Race 2000 is a... Uh, it's a fun one. I like the original. It's got David Carradine in it. And, yeah, yeah. And also Sylvester Stallone, and it is ridiculous. It, it's very ridiculous. Mm-hmm. It, it's almost, it's it's very much a comedy. Mm-hmm. Let me see if I can get down and take a look, see at that. It was, I believe, oh, uh, I don't think it's listed. It may not be. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, they listed mm-hmm. the remakes of yeah death race so i don't know why they didn't just go ahead because his his character name is frankenstein but that's about the only similarity uh we are coming close on time we haven't even touched on some of the things we wanted to talk about here yeah um so we're gonna have to just go ahead and break for now we'll come back with another segment and we'll try to finish out some things and uh introduce our uh radio episode for uh this particular show and then we'll probably come back and finish out okay so all that coming up so please stay tuned you're listening to couch and coffee table This is Couch and Coffee Table. Welcome back to our third segment here on this particular episode concerning Frankenstein. Uh, We want to talk a little bit more about uh, some other adaptations that we didn't get a chance to during our last segment. So um, two or three really nice ones. Uh, There's some really good uh, stage Mm -hmm. shows and things like that. I will just pass it to you. Thanks. Um, So we had seen a theater production uh, which is called Frankenstein. It's a play adapted by Nick Deere from the original novel, and it premiered at the Royal National Theater in 2011. We saw it when it came through Bloomington, and I don't remember 
the cast. I, I don't have the um, playbill in front of me, unfortunately, but um, it is very well done. Uh, I've seen it alive once, but um, Benedict Cumberbatch was one of the original uh, actors in it. And I, I believe he and the other male lead would trade the roles of the creature and Victor Frankenstein fairly regularly because I've seen him in both creature makeup and Frankenstein makeup, uh, which is interesting. But um, for me personally, it was one of the first theater productions I'd ever seen a water effect in. And I was pretty floored uh, because I, I couldn't have imagined how to do water on stage without getting it everywhere. And they did a really good job. But it's a pretty faithful adaptation to the book, and it was very enjoyable to see it on stage. And, and the creature is articulate in the, in the production, which is nice. Um, there have been a lot of goofy, goofy adaptations. Um, there's been one that I, I don't know if I, it is camp. <laughs> I may not call it goofy, but it is definitely camp. And that is the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah, yeah, I, I've been kind of waiting to see if this one was going to come up or not, if we'd have time. Rocky Horror Picture Show hits a lot of different elements all on its own. It's really not just Frankenstein, but it's it's just got so many different things to it. I, I'm afraid we can't go into it here, but at some point we probably will do a show just on Rocky Horror, yeah. just on the discussion of Rocky Horror because that has got such a big following. And I personally know so many people involved in the shadow casting uh, throughout, met a lot of different people. I was in a shadow cast of Rocky Horror at one time. It's a good film. Uh, it's got a lot of catchy music to it. It's, it's really a good film, but you have to take it for what it is. And that is... It's, it's schlock. It is. It absolutely is. And because it knows, I think, on some level that it is schlock, that's how it gets away with so much camp. Because it, it has a lot of fun with it. It's camp, but it's fun. It is so much fun. And it's one of those that, if you haven't seen it, please do, because it, it is a lot of fun. Just as a, a side note for any of our friends and listeners who might not know what a shadow cast is, uh, this refers to the phenomenon of having a film play on the theater screen and then having people in costume recreating the same scene in the film in front of the screen. So uh, for a Rocky shadow cast, you would have Rocky and uh, Dr. Frankenfurter and Brad and Janet miming what's going on on the screen as it's being projected onto the wall behind them. And it takes uh, a thorough knowledge of the film. It takes a uh, pretty close timing when it's done well. Yes. Yes. And if done right, the time, mm -hmm. if you've got the timing right on it, I don't mean to break no, in, it's okay. but it's, if it's done well, it, you know, it looks good and mm -hmm. the audience reacts well to it. It's, a, it's yet another interactive level for that particular film, and that film is known for its interactive levels. Uh, there's a lot to say about it as a phenomenon, but here we're only going to be like, hey, it's a Frankenstein adaptation. It, it is which, somewhat a, yeah. Yeah. Rocky, Rocky is the creation of Dr. Frankenfurter. 
the luminous and incomparable Tim Curry. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and you, you can't say enough about Tim Curry. Just so there can't say enough yeah. about Tim Curry moving on. Uh, yeah. <laughs> there've been uh, many, many, many more stage adaptations. Many of the films we've been talking about have also made their way back to stage or to stage in the first, first place. Um, during the break, Michael uh, let me know that they have actually created a musical out of Young Frankenstein, um, which I think is pretty interesting. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in the same note, uh, varying off the topic for a second, there are so many different things that I have seen that have become musicals in the last little bit that mm -hmm. I've kind of shook my head and just went, wait, what? Yeah. Uh, Carrie, the musical. Mm -hmm. Stephen King's Carrie has yeah. become a musical. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I can't even imagine, but I'm also keen to see it because you, you never know. You never yeah. know. But that that's one for certain that I just wanted to, as a as side note, as a mm -hmm. side note, just to say, yeah, Carrie, the musical, Young Frankenstein, the musical. There have been a number, number of uh, television derivatives. We've, we've just kind of blown through a lot of the film derivatives. Uh, did you want to talk about any, any of the other ones? Uh, there's, there's a lot of different things. Let me see. Okay. There was a Saturday morning live action show in 76 called Monster Squad, not to be mm, confused yeah. with the movie in 87. But three monster statues from a wax museum come to life to fight crime. There's Dracula, Bruce W. Wolf, a werewolf, and Frank N. Stein. Mm. Terrible. Uh, the monster in that was played by Michael Lane. Mm. Uh, the actual uh, guy who is a non-monster in it is played by the, excuse me, Sorry about that. Um, no, uh, Raul Julia was in a Frankenstein film. Fred Grandy, who is best known as Gopher from The Love Boat, was also in this. What? He was a criminology student working as a night watchman at Fred's Wax Museum. Oh, Lord. But, yeah, this was a Saturday morning thing. I loved this show as a little kid. <laughs> How could you not? I loved How this show. How could you not? They had a van. Yeah. They had a van. They had to have a wizard on the side. Uh, no. Aw. I mean, the only other thing that we can reference as well would be uh, 1970 cartoon, also from Saturday morning, which is the Groovy Ghoulies. Yes. <laughs> in which you have Frankie, a friendly version of the monster, doing his best Boris Karloff impersonation. Yes. And anytime he got electrocuted, he'd sit there and say, I needed that. <laughs> But there's That's there's dreadful, but it's wonderful. Yeah, you can, there's you can find that on YouTube, I think. Yeah, you can yeah. find that on YouTube. There's if you are, I'm sorry, if you're familiar with the TV show Laugh In from the 60s and 70s, that's the format loosely based. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, it's bad jokes, worse puns. Yeah, oh, and yeah, and a song. <laughs> it's it's a cartoon with a song, like the Scooby Doo. Yeah, Cartoons used to have songs in them. Scooby-Doo, Fat Albert, they'd yeah. have a couple of songs in it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, they do that. Yeah. Uh, heading over to 1985, there's a film called Weird Science. Oh, yes. Which is very much almost a Bride of Frankenstein, but it's about two yeah. 
yeah. high school kids who want to be popular that make a girl. Anthony Michael Hall is in this. And the woman in question that is created is played by Kelly LeBrock. Yes. Just thought I would, a uh, really good song by Oingo Boingo as well was the main thing for this. Ah, yes. Mm-hmm. Going on down, we also have Tim Burton's Frankenweenie. Which I don't, I've not seen. Have you? I, I, I never really had an interest in it. Yeah. You know, I, I never really I did. I mean, I, I share Tim Burton's love of Vincent Price, but. Yeah. Yeah, a surfeit of Tim Burton is still a surfeit of Tim Burton. Yeah. So. <laughs> Nothing against Tim Burton. It yeah, just, it's not it's the first. A lot of Tim Burton is maybe, maybe too much Tim Burton for me. Yeah. So maybe we should pick it up and see it. Possibly. Yeah. Uh, going on through in 1976, there was a Doctor Who story called The Brain of Morbius that had Frankenstein elements to it. One of my favorites. It's Tom Baker era and it's lovely and I adore it. And it's got Sarah Jane Smith as the companion. So she is, she is one of the best companions. Um, it's got the sisterhood of the flame and their costumes are so good. <laughs> and they've got a, they've got a ritual dance people and tiny Heather was much impressed and thought that this would make the best Halloween costume that no one would understand because that's what I excel at Halloween costumes that no one understands moving on. <laughs> no, that's okay. Uh, let's see here. Lots of Scooby-Doo. Lots of Scooby-Doo. Um, you know, there's, there's so much Drac pack from the eighties. Once yep. again, you have Frankenstein who is the muscle with, him and uh, Dracula's nephew and a werewolf who are all detectives. <laughs> and, and, and it's very much in a superhero, guys. And I again, it's another one of those from the late 70s, early 80s I really enjoyed. Mm -hmm. But, you know, it, it was called Drac Pack. Yeah. And it's... I don't think I ever really saw it, but I did see I did see ads for it. Like we're looking at the page, and it's that's that seems vaguely familiar. But yeah, mm -hmm. a lot of Scooby Doo, a lot of. It's like there was a Saturday Night Live thing. Yeah, Saturday Night Live. Um, there was an X Files episode from season five called "The Postmodern Prometheus." They told it, they updated it with generic engineering technology. G genetic. Genetic, excuse me. Yeah. I, I'm having trouble talking. My apologies. No, that's all right. So but, lots, of, lots of TV. Yeah, lots there's, of TV, there's lots so of TV. much. And my apologies to those of you that are Dracula fans that we didn't go through and do this. Mm -hmm. But I am hoping to possibly do this for uh, next year's uh, show of Dracula. If we can find a really good one. Or we may just talk about Dracula and go more in depth. Yeah, it's just some of the adaptations. So what we've not done, like when, when we talked about Dracula last week and when we talked about Phantom of the Opera the week before, um, or perhaps on my concept of time is befuddled again. Anyway, uh, we did a plot synopsis and we haven't done that with this. Um, the reason being, we kind of assumed everyone knew this story, but um, just to briefly, 
contextualize things, uh, the elements of Frankenstein that are always the same. You have a doctor or a scientist or a person who is the protagonist. They create something that is usually a human or a man or woman, doesn't seem to matter, or uh, in some cases a dog. But they create something that was dead. They bring it back to life. Things go badly. Mm-hmm. Sometimes from the start, sometimes it takes a little while. Um, the creature turns on its creator. Yeah. And then, uh, depending on the flavor of production, if it's if it's a you know horror tragedy, then everyone dies terribly, and uh, somebody is left shaking their fist and saying, you know, we should not play at being God. Or if it's, you know, musical or comedy or a cartoon, then maybe things don't go quite as badly. And uh, maybe somebody just gets bumped on the head or something. But that's, that's the gist of Frankenstein. And given, given Mary Shelley's, the hints about her, her religious convictions that are sewn through the novel, I don't think she'd mind that, you know, 200 years later, we're still talking about this story. And the framework is largely unchanged, like the details can shift, you can, you know, you can make anything into a Frankenstein's creation. And and Boris Karloff was adamant in always calling it the creature and not the monster, because he felt very kindly towards it. Um, it definitely, definitely gave him a solid footing in his career. He'd been yeah. doing bit parts until he got this this position, and then he was Karloff the Uncanny. Yeah, uh, and it really cemented his place in cinema history. So the creature is—he's uh, versatile, and he shows up in a lot of different places and a lot of different formats. And I think definitely part of modern culture still. I mean, we're mm. still creating stories about Frankenstein. We're still writing stories about Frankenstein. We're still looking into this idea um, of something pieced together and brought back to life or of creating something from nothing and how that dynamic would interact with, with, um, with the creator or what, how you would react with your creation. And I think that's really interesting. Didn't mean to go off on a no. It's okay. Tangent there. It's okay. <laughs> the only thing that I wanted to add uh, that I didn't from our last show is that Universal started to pair a lot of the different monsters together. <clears throat> Dracula and Frankenstein almost became interchangeable, mm. and throw the Wolfman in there as well. And once Universal did that, I feel like that nobody really wanted to pull them apart. Ah. Huh. Yeah. Especially for like mm-hmm. Saturday morning cartoons in the seventies and eighties. That's true. They they didn't really want to pull them apart. They they wanted some interaction between Frankenstein and the mm-hmm. werewolf and Dracula. And I think that makes for a lot of fun entertainment. It's mm-hmm. it's campy, sure, but it's and you know it's campy. It's you know <laughs> when I mentioned the Monster Squad from nineteen seventy six, this. This is maybe half a step down from the Batman series with Adam West. I mean, it's <laughs> it's a Saturday morning show. Okay, you just can't get rid of a bomb. Yeah, I mean, it's it, uh, and the same would go with Groovy Ghoulies. Yeah, or Drag yeah. Pack. Both mm-hmm. of those are animated, 
but yeah. it's all Saturday morning stuff that, oh you know, gosh. it's not, yeah. it's not meant to really give you a heavy hitting thing. It's just meant to be a fun cartoon. Yeah. And Monster Squad live action as it was would have worked as a cartoon. It worked live action. And I'm glad that it was live action because it meant that as actors, you had to work a little harder yeah. to get this across. Yeah. It's, it's, it's late season for Sid and Marty Croft, but I'm starting to get Sid and Marty Croft vibes. Yeah. I can see yeah. that. You know, I, I, I never, I never saw, saw the show, but that's. Oh, Monster Squad? Yeah. It's... I can, I can definitely find some. It is available on YouTube. <laughs> I'd like to have a look. Because I'm like, we, we watched some episodes of Sigma the Sea Monster, which is. I enjoyed that as a kid. Yeah. Sigma the Sea Monster and Dr. Shrinker. Yeah, I never saw. We had, I had some comic books in my house from my older siblings. Yeah. Uh, they had like Lidsville comics. Yeah. And coloring books or the, the, the bug one. They had a, it was the bug one. Yeah. So, Land of the Lost was real popular, but I just wasn't down for Land of the Lost. Oh, no. See, I was. <laughs> I was, I was all over that and Slee Stacks were a constant fear when I was a child and um, all the way up to present day when Harry M I work in a water treatment plant that was constructed in 1968 um, before I got a job there I took a tour of uh, a wastewater plant in our town constructed about the same time and there are a lot of like cobwebby not often used uh, mm -hmm places where an operator might walk through and like, Hey, the machines are still running great, but nobody spends a lot of time in these places. So you'd round a corner and you're like, here's a bank of slightly dusty cobwebby machines that are running. Here are pipes larger than my car. Where is the slee stack? Because mm -hmm. it's going to pop out of the woodwork any minute because those old shows in the seventies, they would get filming locations like industrial, mm -hmm. uh, power plants or water treatment plants because you know if you add some dry ice and some fog machines and some weird lighting they look really spooky but this was this was my childhood so you know you're you're wandering around in this this facility that's enormous and strange yeah first thing i thought of was slee stacks <laughs> yeah see and i i enjoyed sigmund and sigmund and the sea monsters just because of the fact that you have a very small uh, a small boy a small sea creature mm -hmm. and he's getting bullied by mm -hmm. you know a lot of the a lot of the adults and everything so naturally he just takes off mm -hmm. you know and as a little kid you feel for that and so they're going i've gotten that too yeah so automatically you have empathy for yeah you know the sea monster just wanted to throw that in there i know that probably probably doesn't sound as intelligent as I was hoping it no, would, but no, it's you very know, sweet. it's very sweet. <clears throat> Excuse a, me. As a kid, I mean, you and I read so much fantasy and yeah. science fiction, and we we lived in a diet on a diet of that. Uh huh. Um, that absolutely any story that paired like young kid with here's this creature or here's this magical thing or here's this adventure that we get yeah. we fall into like we're just we're trying to do something else and we fall into it um that always appealed yeah that absolutely appealed. absolutely yeah one thing I, that never never really made sense to me in any of those stories uh 
was the protagonist immediately wanted to go home. <laughs> and I never understood that. I'm like, Dorothy, Kansas stinks and it's in black and white. Stay in Oz. <laughs> what are you doing? Yeah. What are you doing? They have green horses. Stay yeah. in Oz. Yeah. Jeez. Uh, so yeah. Yeah. <laughs> uh, little, little tidbit from my childhood. Um, I packed a bag. And I used to try to carry this with me just in case I would get sucked into an alternate dimension and meet a magical fairy, unicorn, or a talking lion. Mm -hmm. And uh, I'm not the only one, because we had a friend, uh, I, won't, I won't give their name, but um, they also had a bag packed. <laughs> so one day we compared notes as to what kind of bags we each had and what we had in the bags. And uh, yeah, I, I used to carry uh, little coils of copper wire because I took apart an engine at some point or the, like the magnet for a motor. Um, I had a knife. I had plastic bags to put like weird or gross things that I would find, like animal bones in the woods, which I would find a lot of. And you know, nothing sensible and absolutely nothing practical. <laughs> like no food, nothing to put water in, <laughs> no compass. Didn't know how to use one, but, you know, by heaven, I had some plastic bags <laughs> and some string. Always some kind of string. Um, surely this would let me survive in Narnia. Probably not. <laughs> it's, it's just as well. But, you know, maybe you out there listening also had a bag of stuff. And uh, yeah. we have a Facebook page. So go go tell me what was in your bag. Talk to <laughs> me. <laughs> Make me feel a little less silly. You probably were more practical than I was, but oh, possibly, yeah. That's a good memory. But as kids, you know, you, you're allowed to be a little impractical. Yeah. I think. Yeah. Sometimes as much as the adults will allow. Yeah. Depending that's true. on their mood and everything. Mm -hmm. uh, what I was going to do now was introduce our radio show for today. Yeah. And our radio show is from the Weird Circle. And it is their adaptation of Frankenstein. Now, the date on this, according to the radio logs online, kind of differs. Because um, the source material online says January the 8th, 1944. Uh, the one that I have on the label, it says February 20th, 1944. Now, there was a lot of preempted during, a lot of preempted events right around this time period boxing and things like that mm -hmm. that aired on the radio station that was running the weird circle so maybe this ran on an off time they just re-ran frankenstein again mm -hmm. and so that's why it's both january the 8th and february 20th of 1944 but that is why i mentioned both dates and so with that i'm just going to say here is The Weird Circle with Frankenstein from January 8th, 1944, or February 20th, 1944, depending thereon. Circle. 
In this cave by the restless sea, we are met to call from out of the past stories, strange and weird. Bellkeeper, toll the bell so that all may know we are gathered again in the Weird Circle. Phantoms of a world gone by speak again the immortal tale, Frankenstein. The wind howling outside my lonely home is my only companion. All else is quiet here as I sit by my window in the parlor writing this document for the scientific world. Be warned, you doctors and scientists who come after me. Be warned that man must not experiment with the secrets of life. My experiences started in the University of Manchester, where I was studying natural history. It was after class, May 22nd, 1818, that Professor Waldman, my close dear friend Henry Clerval and myself were in the laboratory of the university. Victor Frankenstein, your persistence amazes me. Someday I shall sit at your feet and allow you to teach me. Thank you, Professor Wallman. But the whole subject of the structure of man has always been too clouded in mysticism. Well, frankly, Victor, I prefer mysticism. Well, that's because you're a mystic, Henry. Why, Henry's no more a mystic than I am. He just loves to avoid arduous work. Oh, translating that means I'm lazy, eh, Professor? Well, if you prefer to put it that way, I rather think of you as a student whose nervous structure does not take kindly to natural history. <laughs> the professor's kinder to you than you are to yourself, Henry. Well, if I worked as hard as you do, Victor, I should probably wear that same gaunt, sleepless look that you carry about. Well, my experiment will be finished tonight. And then I'll manage the eight hours sleep that other men manage. The secret experiment will be finished tonight, huh? Well, then, will you tell us just exactly what you're doing in the basement at home? I'll tell the entire world. As a matter of fact, I, I stayed after class this afternoon, Professor Wallman, to ask you to join me this evening in the basement of our place to watch the completion of my work. Well, uh, how about me? I don't think I dare invite more than one, Henry. And the professor is more interested in this type of procedure than, than you are. I shall be delighted, Victor. Just the best friend who never knows what's going on in his own home, that's all. It's not that, Henry. But I thought you'd entertain Elizabeth for me, while the professor and I were at work. Entertaining Elizabeth would be a delightful favor, old boy. You know, I think you trust me too much with her. Have you ever met Victor's fiancée, Professor Waldman? She's one of the most charming... Yes, Elizabeth was one of the most charming, beautiful women I'd ever known. I had been in love with her from childhood, but even my love for Elizabeth couldn't dim my passionate zeal for the work I was doing. It was eight o'clock that evening. Henry, Elizabeth, and I were seated in the parlor. Elizabeth was saying... I'll be so glad, Victor, darling, when all this is over. 
If you only knew how tired you look. The minute my work is done, successfully or unsuccessfully, I promise you, Elizabeth, we'll be married and, and off to Switzerland before Henry has time to lock up this place. But first, we find out about the secret in the basement. Henry's being eaten up by curiosity. I don't blame him. I'm suffering pangs of what's it all about, too. Well, you'll both know soon. I wonder where Professor Wallman is. He's late. He'll be here soon, Victor. Stop pacing the floor, sweetheart. I think I'll start my work downstairs. Send the professor down when he arrives, will you, darling? We'll come down ourselves and take a look around. Or will I turn into a pillar of salt for peeking? Nobody ever turned into a pillar of salt for peeking, Beth. It was for looking back. Oh, nothing like a good practical working knowledge of the Bible for scientific experiments. <laughs> Starts the night off right. Yes, I thought jokingly of that paragraph from the Bible then. And she was turned into a pillar of salt. But what about a man who looks back? There is no ready reference for him or for me. I went downstairs to my laboratory at a little past eight, opened the door, and started to tinker around to pass the time more quickly. My every sense was alive, taut, waiting, with the sense of what was to come. I heard a knock on the side door, which led me from my laboratory directly into the forest, which bordered Manchester. I looked out and... Good evening, Victor. Oh, did Elizabeth tell you to come down this way, Professor? No, I found the entrance to your laboratory quite by myself. I help you with your coat, sir? No, 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 you proceed with your work. Nothing like trivialities to annoy a scientist at work. <clears throat> there we are. Well, follow me, Professor, into the back room, and you'll see for yourself what this is all about. Well, I feel that I'm in for a most exhilarating evening. I wish I had more students fashioned in your mold, Victor. Well, Professor, here is my... Why... What's this? A full-sized replica of a man. Yes. Only he isn't full-sized. He's fashioned on a grander scale. I should say this creature standing up would be approximately eight feet, two inches tall. Well, you should have been an artist, Victor. He's a perfect reproduction. What did you make him out of? Wood? Clay? Animal flesh. Flesh? Feel him. Oh, feels like the body of a dead man or the body of a man who hasn't as yet been brought to life. This body is complete in every detail. Heart, lungs, teeth, even the fine nervous system. Oh, it's interesting. Yes, interesting. How about the brain cells? Yes, adult brain cells. I think he's quite handsome, don't you? Well, each man to his own taste. He's the best reproduction of a man I've ever seen, but actually his face is hideous. As a plastic surgeon, my dear Victor, I'm afraid I can't give you much credit. Well, what do you intend to do with this hulk? You see this fluid here in the test tube? Yes. I filled the hypodermic needle with it. And now, now I'm going to inject the full eight ounces into the vein, directly above his heart. But why? Watch. You see, Professor, quite by accident, I stumbled on the secret of life. I've been bringing small, one-cell creatures to life for quite some time. The secret of life? Within 30 seconds, after this injection, this creature will live. You're trying to play God, Victor. It's heresy. It's science. I'm making a new race, by far finer than the present one. Larger in structure, stronger, heavier, healthier. A race able to live on nuts and berries. 
with a greater capacity for feeling. Victor, for the love of heaven, don't go through with this experiment. No man living has the right to tamper with the secret of life. You've created a monster on that floor. You've no idea what will happen if you go through with this. Watch, Professor. The injection. I only hope and pray this is a failure. It can't be. His eyes moved. Watch him, Professor. He's like a baby, first realizing life. His hands touch the floor. His eyes are trying to focus on the world around him. He's hideous. Yes, he's hideous. I made the skin too much like parchment, I'm afraid. Victor, get rid of that monster. Uh, he's trying uh, to stand up. Uh, if that mind which you've created is a twisted one, have you any idea what kind of horror you've let loose in England? As a humanitarian, I feel it my Christian duty to do this now. Put that knife down, Professor. No, I can't let... Ooh! Oh, he's got me in the clutch of his hand. Command him to stop this picture. Stop fighting him, Professor. He's frightened. He has the same reactions as a child. Grabs and won't let loose. Let me go, monster. Stop! Don't go out that door. Put the Professor down. Don't go out that door. Monster left my laboratory through the side entrance into the forest, carrying the incredibly mangled body of the professor with him. I rushed out of my laboratory after him, but the creature was faster than I, and he disappeared from view. I returned to my laboratory and destroyed all evidence of the creature's manufacture. I burned the blueprints from which I had made his body. Then, carefully, I locked my laboratory and went upstairs to join Henry Clerval and Elizabeth. I must have looked wild-eyed as I entered the room. <laughs> Henry, that's most amusing. You tell the best anecdotes in all of England. Oh, you flatter me, Elizabeth. <laughs> oh, Victor, you're through sooner than we expected. Uh, Darling, what's the matter? Didn't the professor show up? Nothing's the matter. My experiment was... was a failure. Oh. But the professor... He never showed up. Beth... Henry, I, I want to go away. Of course, darling, we will, as soon as Henry can get the house locked up. Uh, I don't want to wait. I want to leave at once, tonight, please, tonight, Beth. We can get married before we cross the channel and, and then go to Switzerland. But it's almost midnight now, darling. What's the difference? Please, Beth, if you love me. But why tonight, Victor? Henry, you've no idea what I've been through. I have to get away at once. Of course, darling, if you insist. Anything you want. And we'll be married before daylight. Darling, darling, Beth. I know a little minister whom we can awake. And so Beth and I were married that evening in a little chapel on the coast. Then the three of us fled to Bern, Switzerland. I refused to have anything to do with the civilized world. No newspapers, no word of home. Just the peace and quiet of the Swiss mountains. Henry and Elizabeth both tried to learn of the events which had occurred in my laboratory that evening. But I never broke my silence on that subject. After the first tries, they refrained from asking me about it again. It was in the middle of the fourth month of our visit when Henry and I were sitting on the terrace of the little house in the mountain. Beth was out picking berries when Henry suddenly... Victor. I'm your closest friend. I've tried to keep silent about... Well, Victor, the day after we left England, I bought a newspaper. Did you, Henry? Yes. I saw this clipping on the front page. I couldn't very well miss it. What clipping? This one. 
The horribly mangled remains of Professor Waldman was found on Beekman Hill. The identity of the unknown murderer is being sought by Scotland Yard. Poor Professor Waldman. I, I'd no idea. Hadn't you? No. What are you trying to say to me, Henry? You're leaving England so suddenly that very night. Your fear of being discovered, the secret experiment. Well, it, it all seemed to add up to some, some kind of strange connection with this clipping. Now, if you're in trouble, Victor, you can depend on me. I'll stay by your side. I'm not in trouble. I'm just tired, terribly tired. And you know nothing of the professor? Absolutely nothing. He didn't come to our chateau that evening. I told you he didn't then. Stop questioning me. Victor! Victor! We're out here, Beth. Oh, I've just had a horrible experience. Oh, darling, I'm so glad to see you, honey. Look pale, Beth. Sit down right here next to me. Well, what happened, Beth? Well, I was, I was walking in the woods not far from here when I looked up and saw... Well, I saw a man. Sort of a man standing over me. Well, men aren't so bad. That is, if you happen to know the right ones. And you do. I, I'm not joshing, Henry. He wasn't exactly a man. He, he was twice the height of anyone I've ever seen. And his skin looked like dried parchment. It's, it's incredible, but I think I've seen a monster. Monster? Yes, I, I ran away. He didn't follow me. He just, just stared after me, watching me. You do believe me, don't you? A monster stared after oh, look, you? Look, Henry, Victor, through the trees right out there. Look, there he is again. Yes, the monster stood there, silhouetted against the trees. The monster which I had created, standing like an evil glut of flesh and blown, moved in the darkening twilight. And then suddenly, phantom-like, it disappeared. Beth and Henry both watched me as I started from the piazza after the disappearing creature in the backwoods. As I drew near to the heavily wooded section, Giant footprints in the soft mud about me showed the path ahead. The sun was sinking in the west, and the last orange pinpoints of light needled my flesh until every sense within me was tingling with the expectations of seeing my living horror. Then I realized I was unarmed. Every crooked tree, each twisted branch which obstructed my path, appeared to be his form. I heard the crackling of a branch and the moving of a form on the velvet moss. I thought you'd come, Creator. You. Are you frightened, Creator? You dare talk to me. Please, don't turn away from me. Please. Let me go. I mean no harm to you. Listen to me, Victor Frankenstein. You must listen to me. You created me. You owe me that much. I owe you nothing, murderer. Why am I a murderer? Because you created a form so horrible, a face so distorted that no man can look upon me and 
call me friend. I'm an outcast. You can save me. Let me go. Not until you hear my story. Sit down, creator. My arm. Let me go. I wandered through the streets of London that first day. Children screamed in the streets. People flocked together trying to kill me. And I was lonely and hungry. How did you follow me here? Not so long ago, I returned to my birthplace, the laboratory, broke in and discovered your identity. But first, I fled to Scotland and lived outside of a cottage. That's how I learned to speak. An old blind man was teaching a young French girl to speak English. I listened to the lessons from the open windows. Now, what do you expect of me? A companion. A woman of the same species with my defects. One who will be my friend. This, this being, you must create. No, I'll not do it. You must. Every man's entitled to a wife. No. You must. If you create her for me, I'll take her with me into the far wastes, and no one will ever see either of us again, ever. How will you live? On fruits and berries. We'll manage together. Please, you can't deny me this. A mate. A monster's mate. You will? You will? I swear, I'll never harm another human. Never, Creator, if you'll only grant me just one companion. And if I refuse? If you refuse, even a brain that you have made, Creator, might become twisted and distorted. And so that night in the forest, I made a devil's bargain. I bargained to create a monster's mate, perhaps another murderer. How could I know? The monster swore to live in the forest and wait. Wait a year or two years if necessary. And upon completion of my work, he would take his companion away. But if I broke my promise, he swore revenge. And so I started work. I searched Paris for the necessary equipment, built a shack in the woods about a mile away from our chalet. Three months I worked, three solid months, shaping her who was to be his mate. And then one night, it was windy outside. I thought the wind had blown the door open when... Victor! Victor, I'm sorry, I had to disturb you. Is it Beth? No, not Beth. She's fine and sends her love. It's the townspeople. Your activities have stirred up a lot of curiosity. Oh, the fools! Well, I can't blame them, especially after the rumors which have been going around. Rumors of the... Victor, you know the monster in these forests. You've known of him all along. People have seen him and connect him with you. Mothers in the village are frightened of their children. 
I know nothing. Look, I'm only trying to help you. I know nothing, I tell you. But the men have banded together. They're going to make a raid on you here to burn your laboratory down and to find the monster who lives in these woods. They can't. They mustn't. Oh, what devil's work are you carrying on, man? I'm trying to help you. Oh, Victor, will you please let your friends be your friends? Henry, go back to Beth and leave me alone. Beth is safe at home. You're in danger and I won't leave your side this night, my friend. Then be prepared. Prepared for what? You've guessed many of the reasons for my secrecy. Then there is a monster. At school, I stumbled on the secret of life. I was trying to create a superior race. I was a fool and I created him instead. And he does live? Yes, he lives. Professor Waldman. What happened to Professor Waldman? The night I created the monster, Waldman became frightened. He screamed, attempted to kill the creature. The creature, like a child, warded him off and, and then tore him to pieces in front of me. I couldn't stop him. The monster had killed before it had really begun to live. Then what? The monster left the basement through the side entrance, carrying the professor's corpse. I had no choice. I had to leave the country. Oh, what are you doing with that creature now? Fulfilling a promise. Follow me into my cabin and I'll show you. How soon do you think the townsfolk will be here? Oh, within two hours or so. They're meeting in the square in town. Come in. What? A woman? Yes, a woman. The monster's mate, his friend. I promised him a friend. And in return, he swears to hide himself forever from the world. A, a devil's bargain, Victor. A bargain I must keep for all our sakes. But the monster proved himself a murderer time and time again. Why, in London, after the death of Professor Waldman. Time and time again. But how do you know that the mate won't be even more vicious than he? You'll let loose an avalanche of hatred. Or destroy her before you bring her to life. Yes, avalanche of hatred. Look, you've no time to waste. Set fire to this cabin quickly, Victor. Set fire to the cabin and come away. Why, man alive, you can't go through with this thing. But the promise. It's a promise to a fiend. He'll be your death and ours, Victor. Oh, hurry, man, hurry, if you've any love for Beth. I've been insane with grief and fear for Beth and you. Go back to Beth, Henry, at, at once and wait for me. And you? I, I'll set fire to the cabin as soon as I destroy my books. I, I'll join you later. Well, hurry, friend. We'll meet you home as soon as you can make it. For one full hour, I worked feverishly. I soaked the shack in oil, and then taking a taper from the vase, I, I lit the fire. The fire started quickly. I placed my books in the very center of the room and then opened the door of my shack. The experiment was at an end, and I felt free. The monster's mate would never live. I walked out, and then I saw him, his face contorted with rage. <laughs> I knew then what was in his mind as he raced through the forest in front of me. The blazing shack was a beacon of light, and I saw his huge, misshapen form outdistance me, far outdistance me. He was faster than I, taller than I, and covered more territory. Racing, running blindly through the forest, I reached my home. The door of my house was flung open. Henry, mutilated and torn, stumbled blindly toward me. Victor. The monster. Henry, Henry, what? I, I tried to, Victor, I... Henry, you. Beth. Beth, hello. Upstairs. Beth! Beth, I'm coming, darling, I'm coming. I'm coming upstairs. I'm coming.
If you kill her, I'll... Biff! Biff. Biff, oh, my darling. My darling. Oh, Biff, no. No. Both you and Henry. Both dead. You too are alone, creator. Yes. Both of them were dead. All my dear ones gone from me now. And I'm alone. The wind howling outside my window is my only companion. All else is quiet as I sit by my window writing this document. I am dying of loneliness and fear, shunned by the world, hated by everyone. I know I am waiting only for the monster's return, and he, having eluded the world, will return when I've suffered my full share of misery, as he has suffered his. From the time-worn pages of the past, we have brought you the story, Frankenstein. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. We have heard another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. Bellkeeper, toll the bell. Be here in this lonely cave by the restless sea once again next time for another immortal tale in The Weird Circle. This is Couch and Coffee Table. Welcome back. Hope you guys enjoyed the show there with The Weird Circle and Frankenstein. Uh, We're just going to kind of wrap up here with some closing comments and things of that nature. I had one interesting question, uh, just kind of waxing philosophically, I guess, that I was thinking of after we uh, recorded our last segment. And that was with Mary Shelley being with Mary Shelley being the kind of person that she was in terms of saying that Victor Frankenstein was going against God and the rest of the religious aspect of Victor Frankenstein almost mocking God by making a man, would she have, would she have perceived hearts and kidneys and liver transplants as blasphemous? And I kind of like what you had to say mm-hmm. concerning a lot of that, that she wouldn't she wouldn't see it as blasphemous. But. I don't think she would. I think she was a 
pretty forward-thinking person in her time. Uh-huh. And um, even even in our time, honestly, because like this story has survived 200 years. Yeah. Um, I thought the major hurdle would be Victor Frankenstein was creating a man, whole cloth, essentially. He was he was piecing yeah. together dead bodies uh-huh. to create a new man that he was he was the god of. And uh, I can't remember if the line is in the book or not, but it's definitely in the 31 film. Dr. Frankenstein says, now I know what it's like to be God. I am God. Yeah. yeah it's it alive. Is. It's alive. It's live. Crashy yeah. boom, lightning and Boris Carla. Yeah. Um, you are correct. That is in the 31. And Victor is, is a terrible God. Uh, he neglects his creation. He disavows it. He tries to kill it. He's, he's terrible. He's, he's a terrible God. And um, throughout his search for this forbidden knowledge, this, you know, this, you know, uh, reference to paradise lost, mm-hmm. um, he gets very sick. He, he drives himself almost crazy when he's in the throes of his creation. And I think, I think that is the bridge too far for Mary Shelley. She, okay. might, she might be really dubious of cloning. She might be really dubious of in vitro fertilization. Um, I'd be interested to see what she thought of prosthetic prosthetic limbs. Okay. Like some of the some of the motorized ones that yeah. are being built now and the yeah. hook to, to somebody's brain signals. Yeah. Which are great. I mean, huge strides in mobility, in um, you know, if you've lost an arm, you can you can get a replacement that actually functions as a working hand now that will respond to your brain signals. Yeah. I think that's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. I wonder what she yeah. would think of that. Yeah, it um, would be keen to get her views on it mm-hmm. and just, you know, because so much of what she's talking about, there are elements of it as far as in the medical profession that you could almost mm-hmm. do what yeah. she's talking about in this day and age. Yeah, you can print a heart with a with a printer basically it's it uses a cell medium uh rather than plastic but people get uh they get uh what are they called what am i thinking uh the 3d printers i am not for I'm remembering exactly what they're called and i apologize but uh they've done that with hearts they've gotten a skeletonized heart uh, so it's just the cartilage and they've printed a new heart on top of that cartilage skeleton with the patient's own own cells. So the donor heart is the skeletonized cartilage and then it's printed with the cells of the recipient so that it's rejected less by the new heart owner and uh, they can have this new heart that works. And that's amazing stuff. That is amazing stuff. It is, it is. Um, so, but and I, I don't know the church's official stance on on things of this nature, like the medical advancements. Um, I would like to think the church has kept contemporary with that. Mm-hmm. But uh, given the church's stance on some medical procedures that are necessary, I'm not going to get into the details here, but I here's <laughs> here's the reference. I think a lot of people would figure out what I'm talking about. The church has a very dim view of um that hasn't kept pace with modern science or modern understanding mm-hmm. i don't know i don't know um 
I wish we could go back and ask her. Yeah, I do too. Interesting to hear her response and hear what she had to think. Yeah. So what do you think? <laughs> Pop over to our Facebook, put a comment on something. Um, what do you think about that? What do you think Mary Shelley would say to the new, new medical science and how it changes the morality of people? Or does it change the morality of people? Does it challenge a view of religion? Does it challenge a view of God? Or are these things more flexible than that? I think they are. I think a lot of it goes back to personal outlook. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are some that might sit there and say, you know, doing this is a challenge against God because it it is something that is in God's plan that you're only mm -hmm. going to live this long and then you don't follow mm -hmm. God's plan and mm -hmm. you live longer yeah. and you still are able to live a good life. But a lot of people would say you're going against God's plan. Mm -hmm. The argument on the flip side of that would be, how do you know that it wasn't in God's plan for this to happen? So I could live longer right. so that I could, you know, how do you know that I'm not following God's plan? Yeah. Because if God came and told you what you should have did was say, look, instead of us talking about our friend, why don't you go talk to your friend? <laughs> yeah. And a lot of people might see that as blasphemous, but it's just kind of like you, you've had. I know I've been in situations where I've had someone come up and say, I'm kind of worried about such and such. Uh -huh. And I don't really know what they're doing. And it's just kind of like, yeah, you know, I, I am too. Mm hmm what should we do? And then as you get older, you're sitting there going, okay, what should have happened was both me and my friend mm -hmm. go and visit the friend we're concerned with and yeah. just talk to them. Yeah. And maybe a whole bunch of crap could have been avoided. <laughs> right. You know, just by going over and saying, Hey, we're worried about you. You know, what's up with you? <laughs> let's buy you a cookie. What's going on? Let's, let's go out and grab a soda, sit around and talk about it. Yeah. You know, come on. <laughs> this sort of thing should have happened, but a lot of times, you know, you you don't see that far ahead. Yeah, and it's it's later on you find out it's okay. Things things just happen, and it's all mm -hmm. right. It's all right, you know. Uh, I didn't know if there was anything that you wanted to add to no. as far as this. I mean, I this think, is a. I think that's a good that's a good stopping point for me. Okay. All right. Well, then I think that that brings us to the end of this episode. And we appreciate you stopping by and listening in with us here on the couch. Uh, we hope you'll continue to do so. And if you enjoyed this episode, uh, check out some of the other episodes we have to offer, as well as new episodes, which are uploaded every Monday and Wednesday. We are listener supported, as we always have been, by you, the listeners. And we thank you very much for your support. This has been Couch and Coffee Table. I'm Michael Perry. I'm Heather Perry. Until next time, be good to yourself. Thanks for coming by. <laughs>